Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it. Today we have the opportunity of getting an absolute masterclass on gastric cancer from Dr. Sav Brar. Dr. Brar is a surgical oncologist at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto. We had an in-depth discussion on the workup of gastric cancer, and Dr. Brar gave us some technical pearls on doing a gastrectomy. He also talked about the unique relationship between the musician Braun and surgeon Bill Roth. We hope you enjoy it. If you have more ideas on topics we should discuss, please email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can also find the podcast on Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, on to the show. I wanted to start off with a scenario. So, um, 50-year-old Caucasian male presents uh, with early satiety, 10 to 15 pound weight loss and Molina stool. Um, he's had an EGD which shows a friable mass in the cardio of the stomach and this is biopsied and uh, confirms uh, invasive gastric adenocarcinoma. Uh, can you walk us through um, how you would approach a patient like this, um, uh, both from uh, particular things on history, physical, um, as well as other investigations that you might do? Yeah, I think one of the important things um, when uh, discussing uh, stomach cancer is is getting an accurate sense of the endoscopy report. You know, there were studies uh, done, um, uh, I think, in Toronto, but I can't remember exactly where, where they analyzed uh, endoscopy reports prior to a dino- uh, sorry at the diagnosis of stomach cancer, and they found that the endoscopy reports were often missing important information. And some of that important information was uh, critical for planning of treatment, including surgery, but also classification. And I think one of the critical things is when you're talking about a gastric cancer is figuring out whether or not uh, you would treat this as a as a truly a gastric cancer or whether or not it's a gastroesophageal cancer that you would treat more like a uh, esophageal cancer. So uh, uh, the relationship between uh, the extent of the tumor and the GE junction, and it, paying important attention to where the um, the center of the tumor is, is which which is in the new HECC eight staging. The way that we classify uh, esophageal versus gastric tumors. So uh, one thing you'd want to do is talk to the gastroenterologist and look at the report and see whether or not you had. Um, uh, you know, accurate information about the location of the tumor. And then after that, you'd want to see how many biopsies took and they took and if those biopsies came back with a diagnosis of adenocarcinoma. If there was any concerns um, and, you're, and you're someone who treated stomach cancer uh, uh, with the previous endoscopy, I don't think there should be any hesitation to repeat an endoscopy yourself uh, to get a sense of the location of the tumor um, and whether or not uh, there's any other issues that need to be done. And once you've done that, then 
you know, you uh, obviously will have to see the patient and do a history of physical exam. Uh, and important things to note are, as you discussed before, there is satiety. You know, are, are, is this patient obstructed or symptomatic in a way that require uh, some interventions in, in the near term? Uh, is there, are they bleeding? You mentioned the Molina stools. You know, are, are they anemic? Um, and then, uh, and obviously, an important issue is uh, uh, family history and, and trying to ascertain if this is a uh, solitary stomach cancer, which the majority are, or is this one of the cases, you know, less than 10% that is part of a familial syndrome. Um, and and once you have the information from the endoscopy and you've seen the patient and your history and physical examination, really the, the key is trying to figure out, is this an early stomach cancer? Or an advanced stomach cancer, or a metastatic stomach cancer, and and that really is sort of the next big step in trying to figure out what to do uh, for this unfortunate fifty-year-old gentleman. How often are you having to repeat the EGD yourself? Yeah, so I, I think it's an important uh, question. I think um, as a surgeon, I, I really feel like uh, if you're going to do stomach cancer surgery, that you should repeat the EGD yourself. So I almost always will repeat the EGD myself. Uh, and and not because uh, I take them lightly, but, uh, you know, stomach cancer is exceedingly rare. It's only about, uh, you know, it's the 14th most common cancer in, 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 in Canada. So very rare. There's only about you know, 3,000 cases in the country in a given year, uh, many of which uh, don't go to surgery. So uh, the chance that the endoscopist, uh, either a surgeon or gastroenterologist, has a uh, expertise in stomach cancer is, is, is unlikely. So they may not know some of the pertinent information. And so it's important for you to sort of repeat for yourself to get a sense of its location for operative planning, uh, whether or not you think it's going to be uh, obstructing in the near future, whether or not it's, uh, and, and also if you need to do repeat biopsies to get an accurate diagnosis. So I generally tend to repeat them often. I'll do the repeat endoscopy at the same time as a diagnostic laparoscopy, if that's in part of the plan, um, and uh, and and go from there. Where does EUS fit into your practice when working these up? Yeah, so I mean, I think one thing that uh, we have to recognize is that EUS is not easy to get in many Canadian centers, and um, and so that is you know a, a system issue that we you know have to be cognizant of. Um, though I do think. The, the role is uh, to confirm whether or not a cancer is early or advanced stomach cancer. So let me uh, tell you a scenario. So, um, you know, most stomach cancers um, are advanced or metastatic. So that either they have metastatic disease in some uh, place um, outside of the stomach, so either non-regional lymphadenopathy, peritoneal carcinomatosis, liver metastases, or a combination thereof. And, and EUS in those cases is probably not useful, unless it's to maybe confirm um, with a biopsy the, the presence of metastatic disease, but that's that's unusual. I think where EUS fits in is if you think someone may not actually have advanced gastric cancer, so node, uh, so that they may have a node-negative gastric cancer or a T1 uh, gastric cancer, where they may be amenable to going to surgery first without any other therapy. I think if you think a patient might fit into that category, then EOS is helpful to confirm uh, that. So cross-sectional imaging um, is uh, limited in accuracy in, in both T and N categories. Uh, and EOS is, is additive, but it's also not perfect. So if you're sure that a gastric cancer is node positive, 
or that you're sure that they're T3 or T4 based on cross-sectional imaging, then getting a UUS doesn't actually add very much. If you're wondering whether or not a gastric cancer is actually T1, and that they may actually go straight to surgery uh, uh, without any perioperative therapy, then an EUS could be a confirmatory test for that. That's my general approach. I, I think if you have access to EUS, uh, you can do it for any patient that's not metastatic to confirm or help confirm the T category. But we do know from randomized control studies where EUS and CT were done uh, on all patients pre-op, that uh, the accuracy uh, of the T and, and categories is, is not perfect. Are you getting your gastroenterologist to biopsy um, suspicious-looking nodes uh, on EUS? Not regularly. Okay. Not regularly, no. I think, uh, uh, you know, I think if, if, if the T-stage is early, so if it's a T1A, uh, the likelihood of lymph node metastasis is quite low, uh, and uh, the accuracy of uh, EUS-guided uh, biopsy of lymph nodes is, is, is limited. Um, you know, and uh, and so it, it's sort of a decision that you make with a radiologist and a gastroenterologist about, you know, the utility of that test. The, for me, the main uh, crux of the test is trying to figure out the T. Gotcha. Um, and and are, you, are you ever using PET CT as part of your initial workup? Um... Yeah, it's a very good question. So um, uh, there, there really isn't any evidence for the benefit of PET uh, CT for stomach cancer. Um, you know, for GE junction or esophageal cancer is a bit of a different story. Uh, but for stomach cancer, for true stomach cancer, uh, uh, many stomach cancers do not uh, aren't positive on PET, even the primary, uh, and so it's not felt to be useful uh, for 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 staging. So our my general staging would be a, a CT scan, uh, chest, abdomen, pelvis, and, and the chest part of that is is somewhat controversial. Uh, and we use a gastric protocol here at Mount Sinai where we uh, give uh, the patient some effervescent capsules that expand the stomach uh, so that the um, resolution of the stomach wall is a little bit better and the, you can see uh, the lesion and its involvement of the, the serosa a little bit better. And uh, depending on what you think uh, the TNN categories are, we would either add EUS to confirm an early gastric cancer or a diagnostic laparoscopy to look for occult metastatic disease in advanced stomach cancers. Well, that's a good segue because I was going to ask you about diagnostic laparoscopy. Tell me a little bit about who is getting diagnostic laparoscopy for you. Yeah, so I, I think I think it's easy in stomach cancer to get lost in some of the details because there's a uh, uh, I mean, sometimes some lack of clarity of who should get what test, and, and people have differing views. I think as of AGCC UICC seven, uh, peritoneal cytology was uh, considered um, uh, metastatic disease, and so I think any patient with an advanced gastric cancer should get um, a diagnostic laparoscopy with cytology to rule out occult. Uh, peritoneal carcinosis, which doesn't show up on CT, as well as uh, occult uh, cytology-positive disease. And uh, the the rate is between 25 and 30% of patients who have advanced stomach cancer who uh, have a normal CT will have occult metastatic disease, so a significant proportion of patients. And I think... Um, you know, if you look at uh, the rates of cytology-positive and peritoneal carcinosis-positive disease, it's mostly in the T3 and T4 patients, though... You know, it's hard, I think, for most of us to distinguish between T2 and T3, even with CT scan in EUS. 
And so I like to keep things simple. So for me, if someone has advanced stomach cancer, that means T2 or node positive disease, I treat them all the same. They get uh, a CT chest abdomen and pelvis, and if they have T2 or N positive disease, they all get a diagnostic laparoscopy because I'm not sure that a T2 or T3 is accurately distinguishable on preoperative staging. And it also lets things uh, stay simple for me. I'm a simple person. I try to keep things in buckets. So if you're in early stomach cancer, you get a CT chest, abdomen, pelvis. If, if it's thought to be T1 uh, or um, and N0, then you'd get an EOS to confirm, and you wouldn't get a diagnostic laparoscopy. Makes a lot of sense. So you're treating the washings, though. That if they come back as malignant, you're treating this as metastatic disease, and, and you send them off for... Uh, yeah, and, and and I think I think there's a been a slow um, uh, uh, transition to this, and I think there's still some people out there who don't do cytology positive disease, or sometimes you'll hear people say uh, that they'll only do diagnostic washings when they don't want to operate, say a patient who has multiple comorbidities or advanced age. But I think the uh, uh, the staging uh, criteria is clear. It's now in, in its second iteration that cytology positive disease is metastatic disease. You know it. You can do with that information what you want to do, but to me, it's, it's akin to not doing a CT chest for a rectal cancer. You know, uh, you may still operate if they have small volume metastatic disease. I'm not, I mean, I, the, that answer I'm not 100% sure of, though I have my biases, but to not completely stage a patient, I think, is, is in 2020, uh, uh, I mean, I think, uh, suboptimal. Yeah, because it, it's interesting that in our local institution, the the upper GI surgeons actually typically aren't sending uh, washings, and and they point to some studies I think believe out of England where they, you know, they were some some people they were able to convert from positive washings to a um, to negative. And yeah. So what I, what I would say to people is if you have that information and you decide to operate, one thing that would be responsible, I think, is to let the patient know that they have a very high chance of relapse uh, if you operate on cytology-positive disease. Uh, the evidence is, is clear uh, that patients with cytology-positive disease do slightly better than perineal carcinomatosis-positive disease, but much, much, much worse than patients who have cytology-negative and per- perineal carcinomatosis-negative disease. Uh, if you... Um, uh, uh, you know, if you if you look at the available data, it's quite clear that this is metastatic disease with early relapse. Uh, so, if you have a patient and you're going to offer them a total gastrectomy, which is a highly morbid surgery with significant uh, adverse effects on uh, quality of life uh, and uh, not insignificant perioperative mortality, that you should be doing it with a full information available. Um, and to me. Not doing the cytology positive. So if you if you do a diagnostic laparoscopy and you're looking for carcinomatosis, uh, about two thirds of patients with occult metastatic disease will have carcinomatosis positive disease. Another third will have cytology positive disease. So you know it's a significant portion of these people that were actively doing diagnostic laparoscopy for that actually have occult. Uh, cytology positive disease, which is metastatic disease. If you look at the survival curves, they do a little bit better than carcinomatosis positive disease, but not very much better. So yeah, it's not as bad as carcinomatosis probably, but it's still metastatic disease. And if uh, if you want to treat them with perioperative chemotherapy and they convert, then I mean, that's something that I think we should be doing in studies because we don't know what the answer for that is. But if someone has cytology positive disease and continues to have cytology positive disease after chemotherapy, we know that their outcomes are very poor. So you might be subjecting them to a surgery 
that has a, a high morbidity and mortality, somewhere around uh, four to six percent perioperative mortality after a gastrectomy for cancer, and you may actually uh, be uh, making them so unwell that they can't get the life-extending chemotherapy that they might need. That makes a lot of sense. I think with the uh, advent of FLOT, things are are certainly changing for gastric cancer. Can you talk to a little bit about who you're sending for new adjuvant uh, therapy and, and particularly how, how you think FLOT is going to change things um, uh, and where that's going to fit into your practice? Yeah, so I think there, uh, when I was a resident, and uh, Dr. Ball can uh, probably uh, speak to this as well, uh, you know, when I was a resident, uh, you know, the MAGIC study had just been published, and there was a lot of hesitation among surgeons about sending patients to chemotherapy before surgery. They were worried they were going to get quite sick. And I think the pendulum is swung. We know, you know, that patients uh, with advanced stomach cancer have poor outcomes, and we think with uh, perioperative chemotherapy, we may improve those outcomes significantly. So I think people have bought into the idea of perioperative chemotherapy as a treatment of choice for patients with advanced stomach cancer who uh, don't have significant uh, complications that preclude them getting chemotherapy most uh, most uh, obviously uh, significant bleeding or uh, a, a gastric outlet obstruction. So um, a patient who's well enough to get chemo without obstruction or bleeding, who has advanced stomach cancer, meaning T2 or greater and positive disease, who has negative cytology, negative um, uh, diagnostic laparoscopy, I would be sending for uh, perioperative chemotherapy. Um, unless we had a study, and we do have a study on uh, other other studies uh, about perioperative chemo uh, plus minus radiation. Um, and I think the evidence is clear that FLOT does much better than uh, epirubicin, cisplatin, uh, uh, 5-FU uh, for these patients. So the MAGIC uh, regimen uh, with a significantly improved uh, overall survival um, compared uh, to FLOT. So I think any patient who uh, fits that criteria, so advanced stomach cancer T2 or greater, uh, no positive, uh, who doesn't have an obstruction or bleeding and is well enough to get chemo, and uh, I would refer to medical oncologists. And I think my our medical oncology colleagues hesitate somewhat to give the FLOT regimen to older patients, so patients 70 or older, uh, due to the... Um, Toxicity, but that's a discussion that I mean they can have uh, about uh, and uh, about the actual regimen. But that would be my sort of outlook. Uh, if a patient is uh, unwell, they're obstructed, or they have significant bleeding requiring you know multiple transfusions, then I think uh, I mean I would uh, advocate for surgery first. I guess we should back up for our listeners. Can you just talk a little bit about what FLOT is and um, sort of a little bit about the studies that have been done about this? Yeah, so um, so in the mid-2000s, the MAGIC study was uh, published that compared the standard of care at the time, which was surgery alone to perioperative chemotherapy, uh, the uh, ECF regimen, so epirubicin, cisplatin, and 5-FU. Uh, patients got three cycles of chemotherapy before surgery and three cycles after. Many patients uh, did not complete all six cycles, uh, but despite that, on attention to treat analysis, there was a significant uh, survival benefit. And FLOT was a study that compared um, uh, that uh, regimen of ECF, three cycles before surgery and then three cycles after, with a regimen uh, that changed some of the medication so, uh, uh, fluorouracil leucovorin, so that's the F, um, the L, the 
uh, and then uh, oxaliplatin and uh, and a taxane, uh, docetaxel. Uh, so um, slightly changed the regimen and added a taxane uh, to. Uh, uh, then compared that to ECF or ECX and showed a significant uh, uh, survival benefit. Uh, so the regimen was slightly different. You got eight cycles before, uh, sorry, four cycles before and so four cycles afterwards for eight cycles in total. Each cycle was two weeks. So you got four weeks of chemo, um, uh, sorry, sorry, eight weeks of chemo versus, and eight weeks of chemo afterwards. And uh, the you know survival difference, so the median overall survival uh, on ECF on the study was uh, 35 months and with FLOT was 50 months, so which is a, a pretty big um, survival benefit for the FLOT. Uh, and the difference in the overall survival rate, of the, I think it was like 48% versus 58 or 57% with uh, FLOT. So significant improved uh, overall survival and median survival with this uh, with this. Uh, with this regimen, and the big difference in the regimen is adding a taxane, which uh, you know isn't a new thing for stomach cancer. People have been using taxanes for stomach cancer a long time, but hadn't uh, been shown in the adjuvant, sorry, in the perioperative setting to be uh, uh, associated with improved survival. And the and the and the and the worry has been, and the worry when the study was uh, being conducted was the toxicity of the study. This is a German study, and and they didn't report any difference in the toxicity between ECF and FLOT. Uh, but that was sort of the, the main concern of uh, our medical oncologists here, uh, that patients may have significant toxicity with uh, with the FLOT regimen. That's a fantastic review, I think, of the workup uh, management of gastric cancer. But let's get to the fun part. I wanted you to talk a little bit about some technical aspects of um, doing a subtotal gastrectomy. Uh, can you can you walk us through uh, first sort of how how do you choose an approach? Do you do it laparoscopically or open? Uh, and then a little bit about how you sort of think about the operation and and what are your sort of sequence of steps and and how do you approach this operation? One one of the sort of more uh, formative experiences of my training was, was late in my fellowship. I went to Japan for two months and worked uh, in Tokyo with a group um, of surgeons there at, uh, uh, led by Dr. Professor Sano. Um, and, and they did uh, a lot of gastrectomies. They did, you know, 15 or 20 gastrectomies a week, um, which is, you know, much, much higher than the volume that I saw in residency or fellowship. And, you know, the, when I think about uh, a total gastrectomy, I, I, I think about it the way they sort of approach it. And one thing that really sort of changed my outlook was thinking about the operation with a greater curvature up. So the way you know, I sort of conduct this operation, both open and laparoscopically, is uh, you know the first step would be to like um, you know liberate the momentum off the transverse colon and then uh, retract the greater curvature up towards the interior dental wall. And what that does is sort of give you a roadmap of, uh, you know, the lymph node stations that you need to um, uh, tackle when you're doing a, a D2 or D1 lymphadenectomy. And, um, and it really is sort of an elegant way uh, to approach the operation. So um, if you, uh, if for listeners, if you look up the gastric, uh, Japanese gastric cancer uh, guidelines, they'll have uh, 
you know, a, a diagram of the D1 and D2 lymphadenectomy stations. And in their diagram, they have uh, the stomach with a greater curvature up, which is different than our normal anatomic textbook uh, diagrams. And, and that's sort of how I try to set up the operation. And that's the way I think about the operation from the get-go. So from a conceptual standpoint, having a greater curvature up is, is you know, from an anatomical standpoint, the way uh, I'd like to, um, to approach these things. It, you asked about approach. You know, I think there is ongoing studies in uh, Asia, the first of which has been just recently published, uh, looking at the difference between open and laparoscopic uh, 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 surgery for gastric cancer. Uh, there's uh, the results of the uh, uh, class uh, study, the Korean uh, laparoscopic uh, uh, gastric cancer surgery study showed that for early stomach cancer, that there was no difference in oncological outcome uh, between the two approaches of laparoscopic versus open. Uh, and then now a, most, a more recent study uh, from China showed no difference between open and laparoscopic distal gastrectomy for advanced stomach cancer. So there's growing literature that shows that these are uh, equivalent approaches from an oncologic standpoint. So I think people should do what they're most comfortable with. Uh, I offer patients both. Most patients will go for a laparoscopic approach. I do tell them that the uh, the the data uh, to support a laparoscopic gastrectomy for advanced stomach cancer is still maturing, uh, and despite that, most patients will go for a a laparoscopic approach. Um, uh, and so, uh, having said that, uh, the approach in terms of steps is, is basically the same. So, step one, uh, you know, you uh, you know want to make sure your patients are. Um, uh, you know, have appropriate antibiotics and VTE prophylaxis uh, uh, for laparoscopic uh, gastrectomy. I like to um, do a open Hassan uh, approach uh, at the level of the umbilicus and uh, place uh, two uh, 10 millimeter ports, uh, sort of um, a hand's breadth uh, lateral uh, to uh, the umbilicus on the right and left, and then sort of towards the costro. Uh, so the costal margin, I put two five millimeter ports uh, somewhat lateral to those. So it makes kind of like a box um, uh, with my ports. And then I also use an Athenson liver retractor to get that left lateral segment uh, out of the way of our uh, lesser momentum during the dissection. Um, after that, the first step is to uh, divide the momentum off of the um, uh, transverse colon. I think this is, uh, you know, a trickier part when, when you, when you really, if you really understand the omentum's anatomy and embryology, it, uh, it gets more difficult because you want to be accurate. And what the important for that part of that is, is that you want to use the omentum to lead you to the first, uh, lymph node, uh, station, which is the left gastroepiploic, uh, vessels. And, uh, I think the important thing is to follow the, uh, momentum down to the uh, left gastroepiploic vein and artery, right where uh, they are seen above the uh, distal uh, end of the pancreas. And once those are uh, divided, turn my attention towards the right uh, side of the patient. So I follow the momentum down to the right gastroepiploic vein. And I think if you have seen Japanese or Korean surgeons do this part of the operation, it will sort of uh, demonstrate the uh, concept of you don't know what you don't know. So I think when I before I went to Japan, I just thought, okay, you find the gastroepiploic, you know, and you divide them, and and that's it. But if you if you actually look at the the Koreans' approach to D two uh, to to do an accurate uh, gast, left gastro sorry right gastroepiploic. Um, uh, division uh, for the DT lymphadenectomy, you have to see the confluence of this right gastroepiploic vein and the anterior superior 
pancreatic adrenal vein. So you're getting right to the uh, uh, trunk of Henle, uh, which I think is much more, uh, much deeper than most surgeons in North America are used to doing for uh, gastric cancer operations. You know, for for pancreas operations, this is you know uh, common territory. Uh, but the the trunk of Henle is you know you're getting close to the trunk of Henle when you're doing a true um, uh, 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 D, uh, sorry a true lymphadenectomy for gastric cancer. And before we get any further, you know the the right gastroepiphyseal uh, nodes are not even. D2. They're, they're part of the D1 uh, lymph node stations. That's st- station 6. So that's part of your D1. And when you see them do it, you realize that even our D1s in North America are, aren't really up to the standards uh, that they that they set. You divide the right gastropoic uh, vein uh, at the confluence, and you uh, then move up uh, and taking all the lymphatic tissue around it up to the right gastropoic artery. And if you're low enough on the vein, there should be a significant amount of space between the vein and the artery. And what you want to do at this point is take the vein, uh, sorry, take the artery um, uh, at its uh, uh, branching point off the, the gastroduodenal artery. Once you've done this, I always tell people this, even though it's station six, it's supposed to be just the start of the operation. To me, if you've done this part, that you've done the hardest part of the operation because you found the right plane, which is the plane in, uh, anterior to the gastroduodenal artery, which you're going to follow behind uh, the duodenum and the pylorus to, um, to, the, to the hepatic uh, artery. And, and I think once you've done this, this is sort of you know, the, the most stressful part of the operation for me, other than the anastomosis. So once you've done this, you're going to go behind um, the pylorus, uh, liberating the tissue off the GDA to its root. Uh, you're going to uh, divide the tissues um, uh, around the duodenum and two centimeters distal to the pylorus, you're going to divide the pylorus. Um, I think at this point, it's important to recognize that um, you know, if you have an OG uh, tube or a uh, uh, temperature probe in that you ask the anesthesiologist to remove them completely because you don't want to come across them with a stapler. Um, and uh, so uh, that's an important consideration. And I think uh, once the uh, uh, duodenal stump is uh, divided, uh, you you know take a mental break and sort of uh, reassess and um, and go with the next part of the operation, which is, uh, you know, the more... Uh, trickier part of the uh, lymphadenectomy, which is, you know, following along the uh, hepatic artery, um, uh, exposing the portal vein uh, on the uh, medial part of the hepatic artery up uh, to the the liver edge, and then dividing pars flaccida uh, up to the right uh, cruise of the diaphragm. Once you've done this, you've sort of liberated the the right-sided attachments of your on-block lymphadenectomy. You've divided the right gastropoic vein and artery. You've divided the duodenum, the tissues over the gastroduodenal artery. You've uh, divided uh, uh, the right gastric artery at this point and uh, mobilized the tissues over the uh, the left or medial side of the hepatic artery. Um, uh, and you're now sort of bringing all that stuff medial towards the left gastric. And at this point, I think it's important to think of bringing all the lymphatic uh, tissue on block towards the left gastric artery, which is sort of the last vessel that we would take. Um, at this point, there's a, a change of direction. So we've sort of moved uh, from the medial part of the hepatic uh, artery and divided the lesser momentum up to the right uh, 
the linear stapler, I, I, I do a an astomosis uh, through the side to side anastomosis, bringing the jejunum up uh, posteriorly and uh, to the left of the esophagus. And if I'm doing this laparoscopically, I close the common channel uh, with a running suture, three uh, O polysorbic suture. And then uh, do a jejunogygenostomy uh, uh, to perform the Roux-en-Y anastomosis about 45 centimeters distal to that anastomosis. Um, one uh, technique I've begun to use more recently uh, is a jejunal pouch. Uh, so a jejunal pouch has been shown in some uh, uh, smaller studies to be associated with better uh, quality of life and uh, less weight loss for patients. There was a meta-analysis that came out in uh, January 2019 in the Annals of Surgery. And since then, I've been using it for patients who uh, are uh, doing a prophylactic gastrectomy because the outcomes uh, tend to be robust over a longer period of time. Uh, and so um, uh, I will do a 15-centimeter jejunal pouch uh, and anastomose that to the esophagus if a patient is either a very early stomach cancer or I'm doing a prophylactic gastrectomy. Uh, for, for the laparoscopic gastrectomies, then I, I, I uh, remove uh, the specimen uh, through a fan and steel incision using a Lexus wound retractor. Uh, wound re protector, it's about a five and a half to six centimeter fan and steel incision in the lower abdomen. And I usually do this after the, uh, the anastomosis, I mean, the esophagus is divided, but before the anastomosis is done, it gives you a chance to get this big, uh, mostly omentum out of the abdominal cavity. It gives you a moment to sort of take a breather before you do the tricky part of the procedure, which is the anastomosis. That was a beautiful description uh, of the operation. A uh, few little um, minor questions. Um, do you use any energy devices? Uh, yeah, so I, I, I tend to use a harmonic, and, uh, and, and really um, the, the reason why that is is when I went to uh, Japan, uh, they, they use the harmonic for the laparoscopic cases. I think um, there's a bit of more flexibility with a harmonic, um, and um, you just have to be careful if you haven't used it a lot because it's a sort of a, a slightly different um, uh, uh, than, than the ligature, which I think many Canadian surgeons are more comfortable with, um, and, and, uh, and especially given that par part of the instrument remains quite hot uh, during its uh, during its use, so you just have to be very very careful. I think it just it's a bit more elegant in some of the more tricky um, parts of the lymphadenectomy. Though that being said, I, I have more recently used the Maryland tip ligature as well with uh, with some success, uh, just uh, to uh, give it a try. But uh, my my, uh, my preference is the harmonic. And how about drains? Do you leave drains? No, I, I don't leave drains. Unless, so I would, sorry, that's a, that's wrong. I, I, I don't leave drains unless I've really sort of beaten up the uh, pancreas uh, during uh, the lymphadenectomy. Uh, and uh, usually if I don't see any saponification, I think I've done okay. If I, start, if I see significant saponification, I get a bit worried. Even then, I often don't leave a drain, but uh, it's very rarely that I leave a drain. And uh, how about and what do you uh, what do you do with the NG or if you I don't know if you if you use one or not and if you do when do you take it out? Yeah, so I, I don't uh, don't use an NG uh, even for my totals. Um, I uh, I. Um... I don't leave any, uh, any drains, and I don't use an NG, and I also don't oversaw the duodenal stump. Um, the uh, my post-op uh, is I usually give them sips of clear fluid, uh, and then do a contrast study um, uh, on post-op day two. If the contrast study is negative, then I give them a clear fluid diet and transition them to a post-gastrectomy diet, post diet on uh, post-op day three. And if they tolerate that, then they go home on post-op day four. Wow. 
that's fantastic um uh, that was really the bulk of of what i wanted to talk about i had a few quick uh quick hitter questions um yep. let's say you have a, a patient who has um a gastric cancer and clearly has carcinomatosis but you're worried either they have gastric outlet obstruction or they uh you think they're going to need one in the near future uh, what's your sort of palliative option of choice? Are you stenting them or are you doing a palliative GJ? What's sort of your approach to that? Yeah, so it's, it, I mean, that's a very, very good question. I think one that you have to you know, take at a case-by-case um, basis. Um, we're, we're lucky in our group, uh, you know, uh, we have a um, esophagus and gastric cancer tumor board, so I often bring these patients up uh, in, in that um, uh, uh, arena to discuss uh, options. I think uh, there's a rule of thumb out there. Um, it's not based on randomized control trial data, but I think in principle is a, a good general framework, which is if you think the patient's estimated survival is short, you know, you know three months or less, then I think a stent is probably the best course of action. I think if you think that the there's a significant amount of stomach wall involved uh, with cancer, be it either a lenitis plastica picture or just a significant involvement of the distal stomach, um, then doing a bypass can be quite difficult. That being said, in those patients, doing a stent can be quite difficult. So you, you're, you're often stuck um, with a scenario where there isn't great palliation for these patients. But, um, yeah, so... Um, with significant carcinomatosis, I would worry uh, about uh, you know being able to do um, safely a bypass. But if I thought it, we could do it, that there was a good uh, landing uh, for the uh, gastrointestinal anastomosis on the greater curvature of the stomach, that there wasn't lenitis plastica, that they had um, a good chance of uh, uh, robust survival, and especially if this was what's going to keep them uh, from getting uh, chemotherapy, then uh, I have no hesitation in doing a laparoscopic gastrointestinal bypass. Gotcha. And uh, my last question is a perennial one. How do we interpret the different outcomes between the Japanese Korean surgeons in terms of their D3 lymphadenectomy versus the Western studies that don't seem to support a more extensive lymphadenectomy. Is it just that they're better at it uh, than us? Yeah. So, I mean, I think one thing that we should recognize is that there isn't um, any equipoise in Japan and South Korea about uh, doing anything less than a D2 lymphadenectomy. So our ability to get robust uh, clinical trial data uh, to show benefit is probably not going to happen in, in East Asia. If you look at the Western data, there is, you know, three major studies that people quote. Uh, one study was done in England, and one study was done in the Netherlands in the 90s, and one more recently done in Italy. Uh, and I think, you know, um, I can get into the details of these studies, but, um, you know, there were a lot of problems that people had with the, the Dutch and the English studies uh, from uh, the 90s that the surgeons were low volume and not, maybe not well trained, and that they were doing uh, a significant amount of distal pancreatectomy and splenectomies for their detailed lymphadenectomy. And the feeling was that the surgery was not up to the standard of uh, what a, 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 you know, an Asian D2 lymphadenectomy 
would be uh, the Italian study that was published more recently. However, there was a lot of excitement about they did uh, their initial uh, paper showing that perioperative outcomes were quite good, that there was not a significant uh, morbidity or mortality from doing uh, d anectomy. And so the thought was that there would be uh, a more truer picture of a benefit for the d lymphadenectomy. And what we can say is that there wasn't a strong signal in that direction. What we what we what my take homes from that study were uh, that um, that many people. So there was a lot of crossover, inadvertent crossover in the study. So a lot of patients who were assigned to D1 uh, got a D2, got more than D1 lymphadenectomy. Maybe not quite a D2, but got more than a D1 lymphadenectomy. And a lot of patients in the D2 arm got slightly less than the D2 lymphadenectomy. So it sort of grades the difference between the two arms in the study. The other important uh, thing, and I think this is important for your exam, is that for patients with early stomach cancer, there was probably some harm from getting uh, a D2 lymphadenectomy. So for early stomach cancer or patients that you think might have stomach early stomach cancer in the absence of good uh, uh, you know level one evidence of benefit for D2 that we shouldn't be doing a D2 lymphadenectomy for those patients um, if you don't do a lot there's probably no reason to do a D2 lymphadenectomy um, but there has been some analysis that show with increasing uh, uh, T uh, or node positive disease that there might be a benefit of uh, doing uh, detailed lymphadenectomy. That's the stronger signal in the increasing T stage. Um, and so if you have accurate preoperative staging and you think that there's cirrhosis involvement, that maybe doing detailed lymphadenectomy would be of benefit. Well, that was a fantastic overview of gastric cancer. And uh, I'm sure... There's a few of us uh, out there with a little quiz at the end of the year who will appreciate that. So thank you for going yeah. through that. Yeah, and obviously, if you guys have more questions, I mean, I'm happy to answer them. I think it's a, you know, a uh, sort a lot of confusion around these studies, and uh, and so you know, I'm happy to clarify them if I can. Fantastic. So, thank you so much. As you know, you've you've displayed why you're a, the national leader in, in gastric cancer. Quite frankly. Um, by your depth of knowledge and again how you simplify complex topics so thank you for that I think we'll all benefit from it I want to shift gears a little bit and just take five minutes or so and ask you some some more personal questions so that our listeners can can get to know you um, maybe like some of us know you um, j- just give us a, a sense of the of the pathway you kind of ended up at uh, at Mount Sinai in, in Toronto with regard to training yeah so uh, I was um Never, I never thought I was going to be a surgeon. I went to med school uh, at Western, uh, thinking, you know, maybe I was going to do family medicine. But I really, really wanted to be a pediatrician. And in fact, uh, there was a moment in second year where I had this real clarity and, and, and thought I knew for sure that I was going to become a pediatric oncologist. I had started doing um, observerships in pediatric oncology. I did a summer project in at sick kids and pediatrics, thinking that was where I was, where I was going to go. And um, what I what happened to me actually was I started losing interest in medical school and uh, you know sort of dragged my feet getting uh, two observerships and you know started uh, dialing it uh, sorry mailing it in when it came uh, to classes in my second year and my research in my second year uh, summer and um, I really thought that was more having to do with my own um, you know work ethic and I, I thought I was just a bad fit in medicine. Uh, for whatever reason, and uh, at Western, um, uh, in my it was sort of December, and I was assigned uh, 
to the, my, during my core clerkship rotation to work with uh, uh, Dr. Gervin and Dr. Daryl Gray um, at, uh, I mean, at, at Western, uh, and uh, it was a transformative experience. I, went, uh, and, and to be honest, the, the hints that I had um, an interest in surgery were already there, but I just had a lot of misconceptions, like many people do, about surgery. Uh, you know, in our, our dissection lab in first year uh, anatomy, I loved it. I had so much fun doing the dissections. I loved anatomy and I loved embryology. Which I think are core, uh, you know, core parts of a surgeon's uh, uh, knowledge base. And uh, but when it when it came to thinking about doing surgery, I just assumed that I didn't want to do a specialty where there was no patient interaction. I really wanted to be at that sharp end of uh, patient care. And I really not no pun involved, but uh, and no pun intended. But I I really wanted to be at the bedside uh, during hard decisions around cancer care. And that's where I thought I wanted to be a pediatric oncologist. I thought, what's, you know, that, that sort of, to me, was the ultimate version of that, you know, children with cancer and their families dealing with these difficult decisions about treatment and outcomes and relapse and palliation or no palliation. And what I realized is that you can get that in surgery. You can get that in surgery, but also do um, surgery, which is so much fun and so rewarding. And so when I did my general surgery rotation as a clerk, it opened my eyes, I had to switch all my electives, and uh, uh, Daryl Gray uh, was, um, uh, you know, kind enough to talk to me afterwards, and I said, you know, Dr. Gray, I'm really interested in surgery, I never thought I was going to, and but I have no idea where to do electives, and he goes, well, Sam, what are you, what are you interested in? And I said, you know, I, I really like the idea of doing cancer care, and so he said, well, if you're interested in that, you should go to Calgary and work with Wally Temple. And so that was the first elective I set up, and I came to Calgary uh, for an elective in September of my uh, fourth year, which was uh, uh, a long time ago now, in 2003. And I worked with uh, uh, Wally Temple and uh, Greg McKinnon, and uh, Lloyd Mack was the fellow at the time, and I was uh, obviously a well-established surgical oncologist in Calgary. And uh, I really loved my time in Calgary. I had a great time uh, uh, with, the, with the residents and the staff, and I really liked how... Uh, well, people got along there, and so I uh, came there for my residency. Um, so I came to residency in 2004 and uh, uh, was, as you guys uh, know, uh, a, a resident there for five years. And, uh, you know, throughout the whole time, I was open to doing other things, but really it came back to wanting to do surgical oncology. And, you know, the, the program uh, that sort of is sort of the, the well, most well-known for fellowship is in Toronto. And so I did electives with uh, Dr. Carol Swallow and Dr. Andy Smith in Toronto in the surgical oncology program and was lucky enough to end up here for fellowship. Uh, between my residency and my fellowship, I did a master's degree in health economics, health policy uh, at the London School of Economics uh, due to some interest I had in those topics. And it really was a, a great way for me to open up doors with people in Toronto that sort of thought outside the box. And certainly there were people in Calgary like that too, like Elijah Dixon, who was uh, you know, one of my mentors in Calgary. Um, but you know, in, for many American programs, it was sort of like, why would you want to do that? Why, why, why don't you want to you know, work in a lab and try to cure cancer and by pipetting and doing microRNA and, you know, and so uh, I actually found it very difficult to get uh, any doors open in the U.S., but I mean, I ended up coming to Toronto uh, and doing my fellowship here and they, I think, saw something that they liked and asked me to stay and uh, 
join the surgical oncology group at Mount Sinai Hospital uh, with my interest in stomach cancer um, that I pursued, uh, you know, through my uh, rotation in Japan, uh, and then also I joined the sarcoma group, which has been a sort of a, a un, unexpected blessing. And I, I tell people all the time is, you know, if you ask me. Um, it, it, you know, is is this my dream job? And I would say, you know, this is actually better than my dream job. I never would have dreamt that I'd be in the position I am now, uh, working in a very high-volume surgical oncology center, doing gastric cancer and sarcoma, and being the program director of the University of Toronto residency program. Uh, I don't think I would have expected that to be my outcome, and I think it's, uh, you know, speaks to, you know, being in the right place at the right time, but also great mentorship uh, from my mentors, uh, like, uh, uh, you know, uh, the people in Calgary and the people in Toronto that I've met along the way. You know, Sav, I think, uh, as usual, you're understated and humble. I think we all would have expected that level of uh, performance and altitude from you, quite honestly. Um, yeah, it's, well, it's very true. Well, one, of, one of the things I think um, you know you share with one of our, our colleagues, Dr. Gamora, is you're a very innovative thinker. and I don't particularly love that, the out-of-the-box terminology, but but it might actually apply to you. And, you know, I think a couple of the, the places that we've seen that are in uh, some of the stuff you published in Morad Hamid's um, um, magazine, surgical magazine for CAGS uh, called Roscoe. Um, the one in particular I wanted maybe you to talk about a little bit was uh, your article on the connection between Bill Roth, uh, of course, as the father of modern surgery for all of us, and, and Brahms from the musical world. Yeah, so I, I think, I mean, the his, Bill Roth is a fascinating, fascinating figure in the history of surgery. Uh, you know, uh, revolutionized um, surgery in many ways as the chairman of the surgery department in Vienna at the turn of the century. He sort of is the quintessential answer to that, you know, quiz question. Um, and, uh, you know, it's interesting because his... Uh, influence on uh, stomach surgery and stomach cancer surgery is, is obviously there with the, his uh, uh, eponyms and the reconstructions of Bill Rothrone, Bill Rothrone and Bill Roth too. Uh, but you know, we we think um, we think we know a lot about uh, uh, you know excellence and and uh, you know, the whole idea of the ten thousand hours of practice and uh, you know that we all have to be super specialized experts. And Bill Roth is an example of someone who. You know, said, uh, you know, medicine was his, he was married to medicine, but music was his mistress. This, this is a guy who his whole life would rather have, uh, you know, studied and made and discussed music, uh, but was led to medicine because of his family and, you know, the, the need for a more stable future. And at every stage of his career, he was, um, uh, Seeking out opportunities to be involved uh, in in medicine, uh, uh, sorry, in music outside of medicine. So you know, he wrote about music when he was in Zurich. He was a guest conductor of the Zurich Orchestra. He, when he moved to Venice, uh, sorry, Vienna, uh, for his uh, for the job that he became most famous for, he sought out. Um, uh, you know, people in, in music uh, to discuss uh, music and to hold concerts in his house uh, and to attend concerts. And the, 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 the connection he's most famous for, though he's not actually really famous for it, is with uh, the conductor Brahms, um, who he had such a strong uh, friendship with that many of Brahms's um, manuscripts would be sent to Bill Roth for editing and for input. And... Um, 
Uh, Brahms actually uh, uh, named uh, or dedicated a, a, a piano concerto in Bill Roth's name, um, which you should find on on whatever music streaming device you have. It's a very nice uh, piano concerto, um, and he wrote about music, and he wrote about music, and and uh, on, on the side of doing really, really, really revolutionary stuff in in surgery. This is a time when. The, the best surgeons in the world would come to his clinic to learn how he uh, performed his operations. They would learn how he trained surgeons because the surgeons he trained went on to be giants in surgery wherever they went. And more than that, he actually was quite a scientific surgeon in that before he tried uh, you know, these first you know revolutionary stomach cancer operations. They they planned them. They did anatomical studies. They they practiced in animal models. Uh, it wasn't just sort of you know cowboy stuff of them doing uh, you know these big operations for the first time uh, on the fly. They were they're quite deliberative. So what what is amazing about this story is that we um, often are told to be serious and be focused and do one thing well. And I mean. Uh, not to be a jack of all trades, but here is probably the most influential surgeon of all time who, uh, I mean, throughout his life, from teenager to his death, would probably have rather been a musician or writing over music and, and being quite successful at both. Um, and I think it's a great uh uh, a great lesson for all of us that if you have interests outside of medicine, you shouldn't be shy about pursuing them. Um, and all, I mean, not that everyone needs to be creative to be a great surgeon. I actually don't. I disagree with that uh, conclusion. Sometimes that people make from his example. There's many surgeons who just did surgery but did it amazing. Uh, I just don't think that you need to leave your life outside of medicine uh, at home uh, when you embark on 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 this like journey of becoming a surgeon yeah I, I couldn't agree more and, and sometimes when when one of those aspects of your life is a little slow the other the other picks it up and and, and keeps you moving and back yeah and i think i think that's a great great point and I, I i don't know what the evidence for that is but i, I think to def, definitely like if you have a hobby or an interest outside of medicine not even a hobby like another another you know side gig or side hustle but sometimes when that's going well it, it helps you know it helps your your day job or your joke job well Seth, thank you very much for doing this You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.